Well, hey, before we get going, I've asked Zoe Atterton to come up. Uh, Zoe leads our Youth House of Prayer. It's a time on Saturday where our youth gather and pray, and she's leading that, been doing a great job. And so I asked her just to come up and pray for us before we begin this message. Okay. Hi. Um, everybody, close your eyes and bow your heads. Thank you. Okay. Hey, God. Um, yeah, I thank you that, first of all, that we all woke up with breath in our lungs, God, and that you gave us a way to come here today. God, I pray um, as we leave after service is over that you'll just get us home safely and have food ready to be put in our bellies. Um, and God, I pray right now for Will. Yeah, um, as he teaches on what he's about to teach, God, that the words he's saying come from you, God, that he's merely just a vessel, God. I pray that you'll open up our hearts to be able to receive what he's saying. I thank you that you brought, like I said, that you brought us all here. And yeah, just, yeah, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Zoe. Well, um, my task was to come up with a sermon topic that would be relevant and applicable to the youth in our church family, but also that adults could sit in and listen to as well. It wouldn't just be about, you know, how to be cool in high school, because some of us are a little past that at this point. Um, and so let me just give you the sermon title, and you'll probably understand where we're going. The sermon title is The Sin of Sodom and a Biblical Response. So uh, when I started working at this church, I did not have a smartphone and they told me I needed to get one so I could have all the apps and cool things. And then I was told I needed Facebook so I could connect with students and parents. And so for about a year and a half, I've had Facebook and just all the amazing conversations and whatever people have on there. Um, when I was in Idaho, I taught, it, I taught Bible at a Christian school. And so many of my students, you know, when they saw the old Bible professor was on there, they friended me. And so I was watching. Well, recently, a girl from our school named Katie got married. And so I was kind of fascinated with all these pictures of the wedding, and, you know, I clicked on it. I think that's what you're supposed to do. And so I'm seeing all these bridesmaids and groomsmen, and I'm seeing a photographer I know who's taking pictures, and this priest I didn't know. And I began, as I realized, looking at these pictures, realized, where's the groom at? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little bit old, and so it took me a while clicking on pictures to finally realize there wasn't a groom. It was two brides. And so I want to propose to you today that the topic of the sin of Sodom, the, the subject of LGBTQ+, is relevant to all of us in this society. LGBTQ+, if you're not familiar, I had to look it up. The L is for lesbian, the G is for gay, the B is for bisexual, the T is for transgender, and then the Q stands for queer and or questioning, and then the plus basically denotes that more might be added at a further date. And if we're honest with ourselves, the conversation that's being had in our society, they have a very loud voice. In fact, Gallup poll asked Americans to consider, in light of the, the subject and, and how the discussion is going, what would the population in America be that's LGBTQ? And most Americans guess it's somewhere between 23 and 25 percent. But Gallup poll, in interviewing people, found out it's 4.8 percent. And so the question that has to be asked is why does such a small segment of our society have such a loud voice? And I believe part of the reason their voice is so loud is they have a united front. 
If you think about it, I'm not asking you to Google or study it, but you don't see a lot of infighting in that community. You see a common message, a common theme, a common representation. And another factor that factors in is many of them are famous. I've got a picture up here. I don't know all these people because I'm a little bit older. But even us older folks look and we see Elton John and Ellen DeGeneres and some other people. And we realize that they have a platform. They're united and their message goes out loud and clear. So the question we have to ask is what does God's word have to say? And I'm going to use a lot of scripture in this talk because there's a couple limitations. Obviously, there's not a lot of jokes I'm going to tell because they would be inappropriate. Uh, I have family members who are part of this community. I'm not going to tell their stories because those are their stories. And for me to tell them would be disrespectful. And so I don't get to you know, weave in a lot of personal stories about people I know. But I want to go to God's word and I want to make sure that as Christians, if we enter into this discussion, that it's biblically based. And so I want to challenge you now, if you have a Bible, I hope you do, get out your Bible, get out your app, get a pew Bible. I'm going to jump around and we're going to look at some different scriptures together. So one of the first stories we're going to look at, if you turn to Genesis 19, there's one story in the Bible that does involve homosexuality, and this would be the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we want to look at that. So... Genesis 19, 3-5 reads like this. So basically, these two angels that look like men come to town. They come to Sodom. Lot, the, the angels plan to sleep in the town square. Lot says, no, not a good idea. We'll see why, and invites him into his house. So it says, Lot invited him. They entered into his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. So it's important. I hear sometimes hear Christians saying, you know, we're living in an unprecedented age. Things like this have never happened before. Really? We're in the book of Genesis and it's already happening. So there's nothing new under the sun, even when it comes to sin. And so in this passage, we see a sin known as sodomy. Now, without getting graphic, sodomy, re, re, sodomy relates to sexual activity between men, but biblically and legally in the legal system, it can also refer to women as well. And the Bible is clear on homosexuality. Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, as I quote Leviticus 18, it's important to know the entire, the entire Leviticus 18 chapter is devoted to sexual deviancy. And so there's rules about sisters and moms and cousins and sheep and goats and all kinds of things in there. And so lest we say, well, the Bible just picks on this one, the Bible is clear about sexual impurity. Now, some people would argue, well, it's talking about men and not about women, but Romans 1.26 makes it clear that women are included in this as well. Romans 1.26 says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And so the Bible addresses homosexuality. There's seven verses biblically, we're not going to look at them all today, that actually talk about homosexuality. And again, if you're going to enter into the dialogue with culture, it's good to know what the Bible says. If we left here going, well, here's what Will thinks, or here's what popular media thinks, we're not going to get very far. These are seven verses that clearly say homosexuality is a sin. But I don't want to look at them, and here's why. Because biblically, when we see verses that say do not, 
And let's be honest, many times Christians are known for what they're against. We're really known for the do-nots, but even in the Bible, the do-nots always point to the do's. And so when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, do not, what he's saying is, I want you to worship me, that's the do. When he says, don't murder, what he's saying is, I want you to honor the sanctity of life. And so when he says that homosexuality is a do not, what he's really saying is there is a do. And the do has to do with what sexuality is, what marriage is. And so if you turn with me to Matthew 19, 4 through 6, we're going to see what Jesus has to say on this topic. I think this is one of the clearest teachings on uh, gender issues and marriage and the sanctity of marriage. Verse 4 in chapter 19, Jesus says, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? There's God's design. He didn't make an asexual being and say, hey, when you reach a certain age or when society develops to a certain point, you can choose what to be. He made them male and female. This is God's design. He also made them with a purpose. goes on to say, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And so the purpose is becoming one. And this happens physically. If you have questions about that, ask your mom and dad. But there's a physical representation. There's a spiritual becoming one. And so Paul talks about when there's sexual intimacy, there is a uniting of souls. But there's also a metaphorical representation, and that is the ability to possibly conceive children. And so we see this purpose, that there's a purpose in the sexes. There's a purpose in marriage. And then the last part addresses the sanctity of marriage. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So when you hear the phrase, the sanctity of marriage, it's referring to what, what Jesus says here. When they become one in this institution of marriage, man and woman, don't let them be separated. So let me just say that this is a clear passage. Jesus is quoting Genesis. Later on, Paul quotes Jesus and Genesis. And, and I don't want to end my sermon quite yet, but let me just be clear The Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. The Bible says God made them man and woman. This is design. The God says man and woman are to come together in sexual unity in marriage and that marriage is to be protected. There's not a lot I can add to that. The problem is not clarity. The problem is will we submit to what this book says? Be careful with the amen because that applies to all of it right? Yeah. So I want you to imagine for a minute that I like cats. Well, don't imagine. I'm going to be real honest. I like cats. There I said it. Okay. I want you to imagine for some reason, God in his divine wisdom wrote in the Bible that people should not pet or hold cats. Presents a problem for me, doesn't it? Now, my reaction, I could choose several reactions. I could begin to wear cat pride sweatshirts and bumper stickers on my car and say, I don't care what God says. I'm proud of my cat holding and petting. I could join with other cat lovers and we could have parties where we hold and pet cats. I could make it a political agenda. Uh, I could even identify as a cat. But here's the reality that if I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, what would I do? I wouldn't pet or hold cats. That doesn't change my liking of cats. 
It wouldn't be easy. It wouldn't seem fair. It would seem preposterous. And yet, if I follow Jesus and submit to his word, I'm going to submit to what he says. And so I think often the argument, the problem is not our ability to understand, but our ability to submit. Now, as we look at homosexuality, I would say the Bible is clear. The Bible is not a mistake. The Bible hasn't got it wrong. My question, and where we're going to go with the rest of our talk, is what about the church of God in America? How are we doing? Well, I would argue that we don't have a united front like the LGBTQ plus movement does. In fact, I would argue in America there's probably two extremes to go. One is hatred and disdain, and one is complete love and acceptance. And you can look at me and say, well, I'm not that. I'm kind of more in the middle of the road. I'm, I'm like the equal guy. Well, here's the deal. When you address this topic with your friends and people in society, this is what they've heard. I want you to check out this picture I'm going to put up. It may be offensive to many. It should be. The guy in the red shirt is me. The year is 1992. This is Dallas, Texas. My wife and I were studying at UTA. My mom and sister, who are actively involved in the theater community, came to visit. I'm trying to show my mom and sister that Texas is not redneck. And so I decide we're going to take them down to the JFK Assassination Museum. And as we get there, this is what we see. Now, being the outspoken man that I am, I could not resist having a conversation with these folks. So I walked over. If you look close, I don't know if you can see it, the woman in white is kind of red in the face and screaming her guts out at me, which was actually okay. What wasn't okay is the little girl in the red looking down, hawking a loogie that she then spit on me. I, I hope you gasp as you look at this picture. Not that I got spit on, but that this is a picture the world have, has of the church. Now, you swing your pendulum the other way, and I have a picture of a church building, not a courthouse, with a rainbow pride flag saying, all are welcome. I, I don't take offense to all are welcome. I believe in the church, all are welcome. The gay pride part pushes us over the edge. Did you know that in the United States, major denominations, segments of major denominations, Presbyterian, Episcopal, Methodist, Lutheran, have endorsed homosexuality to the point of saying they will marry them and they will also ordain them. I want you to watch a Presbyterian minister share his journey of becoming a pastor in the church. When I was in middle school, I spent a week at the Oregon coast at church camp. It was a week that changed my life. Church camp, if you've never been, is full of a lot of exciting opportunities and moments. You get to go swimming and canoeing. You get to go to Bible study and sing all of those really silly Christian songs and the, the serious ones that remind us about Jesus. I like the silly ones the most. And my favorite activity were the campfires. Because every night, at the end of the night, we would gather around a big fire and there would be a sermon and singing. There would be stories told. And then we would have a time to pray. And the last night that we were there, we were invited to just sit in silence and listening, listen to the crackling fire, listen to the Pacific Ocean off in the distance see the trees. And as I was sitting there, I became aware of two things that have entirely changed the trajectory of my life. I became aware of the love of God and God's acceptance of every part of who I was in a way that I cannot fully explain and that I wake up and experience anew each day. The other thing I became aware of 
was just how attractive the other guys around that campfire were to me. So, I went home and I was encouraged and on fire for the Lord and felt a call to be a Presbyterian pastor and I also knew that I was gay and that's a paradox if ever there was one. And I had to figure it out. And I had no idea what I was going to do. Years later, I had another type of camp experience, this time here in Center City, Philadelphia. I went to Woody's. <laughs> the flagship gay bar of the neighborhood in Philadelphia. And it was line dancing night. Like I said, it was a camp experience. And I'm watching these guys dance, and they get to the last song of the evening, and it's this horrible techno remix of Amazing Grace. There are just certain things you shouldn't do to sacred music. <laughs> all twang, all deep bass line. And I'm sitting there with my friends who are just like, oh my god, what is this? And it all, we're all friends from Princeton Theological Seminary, and I realized I had come to the end of the journey. That journey to integration that had started all those years ago around a campfire in Oregon, it came to an end here in Philadelphia. How had that happened? What was that journey? Well, it, a lot of things had changed. A lot of things had changed within me, but the makeup of Christianity in the United States had shifted dramatically. And I want to tell you about that story. The landscape of American Christianity had changed radically. It's true. And so when we address our friends and culture, when we enter into this dialogue, these are the extremes that they're familiar with. We don't have a united front. And I would argue that the landscape has changed dramatically. I believe, and I'll just kind of cut to the end of my sermon here, I don't believe that we are prepared biblically and with integrity to take this issue on. And I'll tell you why. And so those are two extremes. I would say in between there are some other uh, responses that people might have. Responses that would go something like, we're living in the days of Sodom. I've heard that one a lot. And that's important to know because Sodom was a city that God destroyed as a result of its sin. And so we might do well to know what was the sin of Sodom. I hear people say that we've crossed a line. That as a country, as a nation, there's a line about the sanctity of marriage and sexuality. Man, we've crossed it. And then finally, I hear statements like, this is war. Let's start with the first one about living in the days of Sodom. If we want to know what the sin of Sodom is, I got out some commentaries. So I went to my shelf, and then Gary was in town, so I went to his shelf. And it finally dawned on me, I remembered an old Bible professor told me this. The best Bible commentary of all is what? The Bible itself. So take your best commentary and turn with me to Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50. Let's see what the God of the universe calls the sin of Sodom. I venture to say many of you are probably not familiar with this passage. And again, if we're going to enter into dialogue in our culture, you would do very well to know what God calls the sin of Sodom. So in this passage, in this chapter, God is talking to the nation of Israel, referring to her as a bride. And so you'll see there's feminine linguistics about sisters and all that, daughters. Verse 49, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Pay attention. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. Arrogant, overfed, 
and unconcerned. They did not help the poor or needy. They were haughty, another word for pride, and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Did you see what the sin of Sodom was, was there? Did you notice something not included that you probably expected? Now, don't get me wrong, sodomy is a sin, and so when he talks about other detestable things, it's in there. But when the God of the universe addresses the sin of Sodom, it's arrogance and overfed and unconcerned for the poor. I believe we're living in the days of Sodom. I believe we've been living there a long time. Just because a group has emerged in their sin with an agenda does not mean we've now entered the days of Sodom. I want you to think about the word arrogant. Good definition, I heard, the inability to listen to or consider the views of others. Anybody live like that? Turn on the news. Watch Facebook. Watch Twitter. Watch people when they express their opinions and the inability to enter into rational discussions. I, I pray at this point with some of the arrogance going on, I don't think Christians should jump into the dialogue with our society. I think some humility is in order. And you might say, yeah, but I know what God's word said. Well, if you do, it's going to lead to humility because it's God's words, not yours. So we have arrogance to deal with. What about overfed? I was out at my brother-in-law Steve's house. We're driving down to the mall here on Cooper. So we drive Cooper the whole way. For fun, we decided to count restaurants. From Alvarado to the mall, 72 restaurants along Cooper Street. Anybody might agree we're overfed? I, I don't want to say it because I don't want to offend, but in America, the obesity rate is 39.8%. And it, it's not just food. We're, we're overfed with materialism. We're overfed with screen time. The average American screen time is 6 hours and 43 minutes a day. We are overstimulated. We're overfed. And so is it fair to say that even in the church in America, it's possible we're overfed? And the final one relates to that unconcern for the poor. Now, this one's a little bit hard to measure. It's not like we all walk around with concern meters on our chest. But let me just give you a number. In light of being overfed, 3.1 million children a year die of malnutrition. It's a hard number to hear when you're overfed, isn't it? And let's be honest, many of us are going to hear the number and kind of shake it off and go out to a really good lunch when we're done. But I want to suggest to you that this is what God calls the sin of Sodom. I want to argue with you that the homosexuality in the city was a byproduct of a fruit of living for themselves. And I would argue in America today, we've been living the sin of Sodom, and now the sin of sodomy is a byproduct or a fruit of that lifestyle as well. So when we say a lifestyle needs to be changed, I agree, but I believe it begins with us. Homosexuality is at the tip of the iceberg. Turn to Romans 1, and I want you to think for a minute about an iceberg. Got a picture up here of an iceberg. Now, what we know about an iceberg is you have a part above the surface, and below the surface, there's a lot more going on. It's bigger than it appears. And in Romans 1, as I just proposed, Paul is going to tell us, and actually related to the topic of homosexuality, that homosexuality is a sin at the surface, but there's more going on below. Listen to what Paul says. Romans 1, Paul is describing the attributes of God clearly seen in nature and creation. He goes on to say, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. 
might be an apt description of our country, not glorifying God or giving thanks. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, watch the news. Go to Facebook. Go to Twitter. Do you see futility and darkness? Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Here's what happens as a result of that. Therefore, God gave them over in sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And so here we see heterosexual sin as a result of not following God. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, the sin is compounded. God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones in the same way the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their sin. I want you to think about the iceberg. We see there's no glory or thanks to God. There's futile thinking. We become fools in false worship. I think we've been there for a while. The sexual impurity did not pop up overnight. We go back to the 50s, the 60s, the 70s with the sexual revolution. We see it happening. And today we see finally the tip of the iceberg. And if we're to dialogue with culture, if we're to address a sin, we need to consider what's below the surface. We need to consider the heart. We need to consider that Jesus is not in the picture. And so we have the sin of Sodom. But let's be clear what the sin of Sodom is. Another phrase we hear is we've crossed a line. And I think when people mean this, they're talking about sexual impurity and the sanctity of marriage. And what they're saying is that by the agenda of the LGBTQ plus community, we've crossed a line. There was a line and, and we've crossed it. Jesus has something to say about that in Matthew 19.9. Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And so in this, Jesus talks about sexual impurity. The word he uses is porneia, from which we get pornography. Talks about adultery. Talks about the covenant of marriage. I'm going to give you some stats from the church. 33% of marriages in the church end in divorce. You think maybe we've crossed a line? 28% of youth in America are sexually abused. That's one in three almost. And then finally, a staggering number, 76% of American Christians actively view porn. The line has been crossed. God's line of sexual impurity and the sanctity of marriage was crossed a long time ago, ladies and gentlemen. And I don't want to make excuses, and people are still responsible for their choices, but there are young people in our society who have grown up in broken homes, with a mom or dad looking at porn who've been sexually abused, and we wonder why they don't want to enter the covenant of marriage? We wonder why maybe there's some sexual promiscuity or some sexual activity that's not proper? Are you kidding me? And those were in the church. We've crossed a line. It didn't get crossed in the last couple years by one particular sexually sin. And so a line's been crossed. Listen to these facts just on porn alone. Porn is a global estimated $97 billion, billion dollar industry with about $12 billion of that coming from the U.S. 
Now, I can't get my mind around billion. I don't have billions, but listen to this. Porn sites receive more regular traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined each month. The porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, NBA, and MLB, also more than ABC, NBC, and CBS. Here's the most tragic. 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to porn, and 94% of children will see porn by the age of 14. We've crossed a line. And I'm glad to be part of a church family where Gary gets up here and he's not afraid to talk about divorce. He's not afraid to talk about porn. Let me just say to you that if you're actively viewing porn, which statistics would say someone in this room is, you're opening the doors to your home, to your family, to your roommates, to whoever, to demonic influence completely. You may as well have a seance or do a Ouija board instead. The impact is just as tragic. And so again, I would say before we go out and dialogue with one particular community on their sin and how to do it, we've got to stop crossing the line and clean up our own act. The, the final one that I hear is this is war. Ephesians 6, 11 tells us there is a war, but who is the war against? It's not against flesh and blood. It's not against an acronym made up of letters like an alphabet. What's it against? Powers and principalities. It's a spiritual war. It shouldn't surprise us that the church is lagging in this department because Satan knows exactly where to direct his efforts. I would also propose there needs to be a war within there needs to be cleaning house. You've got to turn for this one because this might be the most controversial of all. 1 Corinthians 5, 19, 9 through 13. Here's how we clean house. Here's how we deal with the sin of Sodom. Here's how we deal with the fact that we've crossed the line. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Earlier he addressed a certain sexual sin that was going on, and now he clarifies what he means. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Some people are like, well, there it is. We can stay away from them. Listen to what Paul says. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. I love Paul. Such a smart aleck. He's like, if your job is to stay away from sexually immoral and idolaters, you just have to like, leave the planet. But now I am writing to you that you must listen to this. Not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. If I asked you the question and said, who would you not be willing to eat with? Many of us would say, well, I'm not going out with that alphabet community. But Paul's saying right here that we have to be more aware of the people in the church that claim to be one thing and live another. And then he clarifies with this. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? The American church is really good at judging. We wag our fingers, we quote scripture at them, we tell them what they're doing wrong, and he says this, are you not to judge those inside? I can't tell you how many times I've heard it from Christians. When you begin to talk about sin, the first words out of their mouth are, we're not supposed to judge. This is why we've crossed a line. This is why we live in the Sodom. There's no housekeeping going on. 
In fact, we, we, we insult the gay community and say, it's whatever goes and it's all relativism. How have we not done the same thing in the church? When we don't judge sin, when we don't confront it, we're essentially saying, hey, you leave me alone on my stuff and I'll leave you alone on your stuff and we'll just live how we want. And Paul says, are we not to judge those in the church? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Now, just to be clear on the judging, because some of you are going, well, I know somewhere it says not to judge. I've got a diagram up here. I'm not going to preach it because it would be a whole sermon. But essentially, there's quadrants of believer and unbeliever, seen and unseen. And so if you look at the unbeliever quadrant, we're not supposed to judge those outside the church for things that are seen or unseen. And, and things that are unseen would mean their value, their salvation, their heart. We're also not supposed to judge believers on what's unseen. And so I can't look out and say, I think you have a bad heart. I have no idea. But it does say, clearly, Paul says, judge the actions of believers. So if you saw my car outside a strip club in Dallas, you don't get to drive on and say, I'm not supposed to judge. You better call it in. You better take a picture. In fact, if you're a man, you better come on in that club, break my nose, and drag me out. Because this is how we achieve the kind of purity and integrity in the church and biblical accountability. At that point, now some of you are listening going, man, you haven't talked about love. You haven't talked about speaking truth. You haven't talked about debating. I haven't. Because I believe that until we get our biblical truth and our integrity in line, we shouldn't be out doing that. Because the result becomes those two extremes we talked about, utter hatred and contempt and throwing verses at people or full acceptance and love and just kind of an apologetic, apathetic, do what you want. We're sorry that it was rough in the past. So here's my question. What, what is a biblical response? Because I don't believe this is a war to be won. I believe this is a wound to be healed. And I believe it starts with us. Nehemiah, if you remember the story, Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. Some servants came to him in chapter 1 and told him that the city was in disarray, the people were living in sin, the walls were torn down, temple worship wasn't going on. What was Nehemiah's response? Verse 4, chapter 1. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Listen to his prayer. Lord, the God of heaven... The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. He's identifying with the nation of Israel. Do we identify the same way with the people of America? Last time I checked, it's called the United States of America. It's not blue or red, left or right, donkey or elephant. It's united country. He goes on to say this. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. And then God gives a promise in 2 Chronicles that when we repent. 2 Chronicles 7.13, he says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land and send pestilence among the people, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So how do we respond? What's a biblical response? I believe it's repentance. So I'm going to ask you guys to do something. Larry's going to come up and play a song. He played it first service. I don't know if I'd ever heard it. It's an amazing song. 
Uh, Gary does a great job often talking about postures of worship. And one of the postures he talks about is bending our knee as a sign of repentance and humility. And so I'm going to invite you. We're going to take some time. If you're able, I'd, I'd like you to get out. You can come to the front. People will pray with you. You can get out in the aisle. You can turn around your seat. But I'd actually like us to physically take a knee. And I'd like us to repent of the sin that we see, the, the sin of Sodom, the sin within the church, the lines we've crossed, and to pray for our nation. Maybe you're that person as you listen, you're going, man, I've lived in sexual impurity and I'm part of the problem. Maybe homosexuality is the thing. Maybe as I joked, you need to say, man, I really like cats, but I'm not going to pet and I'm not going to hold. And there's hope. So let's take time to pray.
Repentance is an activity that does not return void. You think of Sodom and Gomorrah, but you also think of Nineveh. When the people repented and cried out to God, he, he spared them. A few chapters later in the book of Ezekiel, after we read the sin of Sodom, chapter 18, verse 27, this is God speaking. But if a wicked person turns away from the wickedness they have committed and does what is just and right, they will save their life. Because they consider all the offenses they have committed and turn away from them, that person will surely live. They will not die. This verse is a direct reference to Jesus Christ. By the power of his blood and forgiveness, when we turn in repentance, there's forgiveness. And so my prayer today is that God hears our prayers, and I know he does, and that God would hear the prayers of our nation. We're going to end here in a minute. I'm going to close in prayer. If you're new, uh, we'd love to see you up front on my right if you have questions in the back. If you just want to pray some more, some elders and staff are going to come up. They would love to pray with you, whatever it might be. So let's pray together. Father, we thank and praise you for your truth. We thank and praise you for the ability to repent. I think evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and hearts is the ability to turn from one sin and turn to you. And so I pray you would hear our prayers. I pray that you would heal our land. And I pray ultimately that 4.9% of our population living this way would find you as their Savior and Lord. I pray it would be real and true. In Jesus' name, amen.